Hello and welcome again. My name is Travis. I'm the host of Oscar Mike Radio. Oscar Mike Radio is part of the Hoobazoo Network. You can find out more on hoobazoo.com. And we're rolling right through January. We're starting off the new year with a bang. And I've got a new kind of story to talk about today. I am with uh, Navy Chief retired Paul Freeman, author, and just all around, you know, awesome guy that I met through the Scuttlebutt podcast. Mr. Freeman, welcome to Oscar Mike Radio. Yeah, hey, Travis, thank you. And thank you, Oscar Mike Radio, for having me today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's, it's a great pleasure. Uh, Commander Fleek and Andrew Farr of TSP, the Scuttlebutt, you know, told me all about you and, and we got connected and I'm like, man, this is a very interesting thing. And then, you know, as we, we started talking, we'll get into it later. We talk about the book you wrote and then the veterans you support. But, you know, for, for my you know listeners and watchers and viewers out there, kind of just tell us a story of your naval career. Okay. Um, well, uh, I grew up in uh, Chicago, on the north side, uh, about seven miles from Wrigley Field. So go Cubs for starters. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, my grandpa lived with us up in the uh, up in the top level of the house, and he was a Navy guy. And in my senior year of high school, I'm not kidding, you, he had this big Navy ring on his finger. And he, I would go upstairs and talk to him. He had a little round table, and he had his whiskey, his his uh, Palmel cigarette, and that Navy ring. And he would talk to me. He goes, "What are you going to do after high school?" I said, "I'm going to UTEP. I'm going to go play football." He goes, uh, "No." You're not going. You're not going. I go, what do you mean? No. I go, that's where my friends are going. We're going to Utah. He goes, no, you're going in the Navy. And I said, the Navy? He goes, yeah, you can get your college done in the Navy. Go talk to the recruiter. I says, well, I'll think about it. He goes, no, go talk to that recruiter. So as I, as he's speaking to me, Travis, that Navy ring would be making a, he would be clinking it off his little round table when he's drinking his whiskey. So I, I went down to the recruiter and I talked to him and, uh, uh, um, 1984, six days after high school, I went to uh, boot camp in Great Lakes, and uh, then I found myself on the USS Carl Vinson. I met it in Yakuska, Japan, and boy, I'll tell you what, the, uh, that was the first time a nuclear aircraft carrier had pulled in to Pierside in Japan since Hiroshima, apparently. Well, I didn't know what I was getting myself into because there was riot buses out there, and and I'm like, in this big city, metropolis ship pulls up to the pier, and I'm looking up at it, and I go, where I'm going to be living for four years, you know? So anyways, um, got on board the ship, checked into my uh, my shop. I was a catapult uh, uh, operator at the time, launched, the ones that launched airplanes off the ship. Yep. Um, they, um, so I, I went to, I joined into my crew and all that, and then... Uh, uh, after about a year or two, I got recruited to go work up in the tower, up in the aircraft carrier, the very top, which is, uh, it's like an air traffic control center. Um, and uh, that was a great job. I made, uh, I made E5 at that point. Okay. Yeah, so I, I, I made E5. Uh, I eventually worked myself up to be the tower supervisor for the Carl Vinson at the time. And uh, shortly after that, I uh, took orders to go shore base. The Carl Vinson was based out of Alameda. And I said, well, <clears throat> after three cruises and four years out at sea, uh, let me try this shore duty thing in the Navy and see if I still like it. <laughs> you know, so I went to shore duty 
And um, after about two years of that, there was an A6 squadron on the base there, and I had uh, transferred over to the A6 squadron. Uh, did four years over there. Uh, made uh, E6, uh, just different jobs that I did in the squadron unit. And uh, they were the Firebirds, VA-304 Firebirds, A6s out of NES Alameda. Um, so then after that, the, uh, they started decommissioning bases during the Clinton era. And yep. so lo and behold, Naval Air Station Alameda is on the list to get cut. So they shoved a bunch of us off across the bay in San Francisco to uh, Moffett Field. And then uh, at Moffett Field, I, I did about, I was supposed to do four years there. Um, and it's kind of like a component repair level duty. Uh, you tear down the engines and you come back up and all that. And I was used to being by the, squ- uh, the, the jets up on the flight deck, you know, doing all that. So I screamed and hollered and said, I want out of here. I want to go F-18s. I don't care where, but send me to f 18 somewhere. Well, and they said, well, you, you still got two more years here. I go, no, I want to do an early transfer. I'm out of here. So anyways, after wanking a lot to the, uh, the master chief, the E-9, he, uh, he, uh, he let me go. So I went to an F-18 squadron in Texas, um, which actually at the time was an F-14 squadron. So now I'm entering into the arena of the book, which is uh, the, uh, the Hunters of Texas, um, which is- Legendary, uh, legendary Hunters of Texas. Yes, the legendary Hunters of Texas. So I showed up at this unit in Texas. I was- uh, a brand, I made chief at this point. Okay. Uh, I showed up at the squadron, and we had F-14 Tomcats at the time. Well, um, I got sent there to transition the squadron over to F-18s. So while I left California, I went to F-18 system school um, so that I would have that done ahead of time. So I, I reported to the squadron in Fort Worth, and uh, it was Tomcats at the time. And um, the uh, the Tomcat people really didn't, I don't know how much they liked me or not. They put me in quality control and they go, this is the guy that's transitioned us from F-14s to F-18s next year. Ooh, you know, so anyways, I had a little, I had a, a, I had a file cabinet as my desk in the F-14 quality control office. They gave me a file cabinet. And so I had a little, I put my books and my work up there and um, I remember the, uh, the uh, quality control senior chief at the time, the, the guys were going out on deployment for two weeks. He goes, hey, while they're gone, I want you to take this office and turn it into uh, F-18 office. I go, okay. He goes, uh, <laughs> he goes, put all the, there's six programs in a basic six programs in a in a fighter squadron in the Navy that we we have to manage in QC, quality control. So anyways, he goes, do what you gotta do. I said, okay. So when everybody came back from the deployment, there was six white binders on every inspector's desk. They're all looking at me like, what the hell is this? I said, well, that is the six programs that we're gonna uh, manage the F-18s with. Well, we're still Tomcats, what the hell? So it was a big ruckus. But I did what the senior chief told me, the E8, you know. Anyways, um, <clears throat> um, so we were letting go of the F-14s, and um, we were going to get the F-18s at that time. And- now, now, just just real quick for people who who may not understand, 
you know, naval yeah. and military aviation. How big of a jump was the F-18 over the F-14? Because even to this day, I talked to some naval aviators who liked the Tomcat platform. It carried a lot of ordnance very fast and, and was mechanically, you know, they liked it. So let me break it down like this. Maybe this will. Um, so the F-14 can carry the Phoenix missile. It could, it could carry a few of them. <laughs> and it could, it could track targets 100 miles away, basically, and launch this Phoenix missile off of the Tomcat and hit its target unseen from 100 miles away, whatever. Uh, people can Google it if they want the exact details. Um, uh, yeah, so the F-14, was a, it's a big platform. It's a big airplane, okay? And it's an old product. It's, 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 it's all, uh, it's not like, uh, like the F-18 was quick disconnect and modular in design, and I'll get to that in a second. Whereas the Tomcat was nuts and bolts, safety wire. It was a it was a mechanical airplane. Um, so, for an example, a uh, an F-14 to remove an engine out of an F-14 uh, would take four hours, four four guys, four man hours, um, and that's because everything was mechanical. There was a lot of connections and all that. The F-18. Um, would take one hour to pull an engine out. It could because there was it was only a couple things that were connected to the the the, the nacelle, the middle of the airplane between both engines. So you can di quick disconnect things really quick, and you can get this engine out of the bay really quick in an hour. Um, uh, so a stat I'll give you. So as an aircraft maintenance chief, we used to track maintenance hours to flight hours. Okay. And on the F-14, it was 70 maintenance hours to one flight hour, approximately. So that's a lot of maintenance hours for one flight, one, one hour of flight. On the F-18, when we got, when we transitioned and we got the F-18, we were seeing 25 maintenance hours to one flight hour, which is a big difference because, um, you can get, you can keep the F-18s on the schedule a lot easier than you could the F-14s. If that makes sense. Well, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And, and in my understanding, too, because, you know, we used to practice shooting them down, the F-18s, they were more nimble than the F-14. Uh, not the F-14. The F-14 had speed and vertical thrust and all that stuff. But the F-18 right. could, could had, a, had a higher turn rate. Uh, yeah, I can explain that. So yeah. yeah. Another, just an avionics thing real quick, the F-14 had a better radar than the F-18. It could, it could do more, it was a more powerful radar than the F-18 um, by far. Um, but the, um, um, let me see here, what can, I, what can I talk to you about on that? Um, but like I was saying, the F-18, I lost my train of thought here, sorry. Uh, just the radar between the 18 and the 14. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the radar in the Hornet was was not as strong, but okay. So the Tomcat is is known for Top Gun. So the aircraft we're talking about, folks, is the one that was in Top Gun. It's a big airplane. It's uh it's complicated. The wing swept design system for maintenance folks is really complicated, and typically it leaks. Just part just being on the flight line, it'll leak. Started yeah, it's it's crazy, and to close the doors underneath the jet. You literally have to, you have to kind of shake the airplane because the plane flexes. It's so big. 
to get the door shut on the belly, you have to flex the airplane. Um, yeah, it's nuts. Um, um, but so the F-18, so the reason why the F-18 can sit and pivot up in the air at 60 knots, and it can just kind of hover, <laughs> basically, and the pilots can put the nose on the target and just sit up there, um, is because they got these things called air data computers, and these air data computers tie into the flight control computers, and they will keep that the flight controls moving in such a manner that the airplane won't stall, won't fall out of the sky. And um, so that's the advance uh, on the uh, on the F-18. It, it's a very, um, it may not be like as fast or, or climb rate as quick as a Tomcat, but from a, uh, a, a mission standpoint, you can, they, can, they can really turn on a dime. And, uh, and that's because of their flight control computers and these air data computers that keep those flight controls moving and, and, and so forth. You know, a Tomcat needs a lot of speed. It's a big airplane. Um, it's inherently a negative stable aircraft. So what I mean is at a slower airspeed, the Tomcat, because of its design, it's made for speed. It's not made for slow flight. So the airplane becomes unstable coming into the carrier. It's uh, the pilots will tell you that they're taking the stick and the throttle, and they're doing this the whole time, trying to keep that plane, that Tomcat coming in at a slow, at slow flight with a lot of drag, uh, flaps down and, and the gears down and all that. Um, you'll see it rocking as it's coming in on final. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's just because it's inherently a negative platform. Uh, the Hornet, from talking to the, the pilots that, that flew that um, in my unit, they... It was a it was a more stable airplane. The, the the Hornet they said was very easy to fly, but the demand, the cockpit workload, Travis for the missions and and the programming and all the stuff they got to do, um, is was uh, was very intense and labor intensive for the F eighteen pilots. Um, you know the Hornet uh, the Tomcats. Well, at least the Tomcat had a, a guy behind them in the reel in the back seat that could help them out. But um, and the Hornet the uh, even though it was, e they said that it was the aircraft was made easy to fly, so they can the pilots can focus more on on the on the mission and, and their and their missiles and, and their loadex, what they got to do for that mission. So they made the plane very easy to fly. Um, so so it's it's an easier it was an easier platform to fly, and you know I, I understood this. Uh, you know several Marine Corps units told me that you know, over time that they got the maintenance down on it and, and they could keep it in the air for a long time. Uh, it was just always an interesting aircraft to me because it never got the, the popularity of like the F-16 or the sexiness of the F-15 or the, the standout F-14, but it's been a major player in our arsenal for almost three decades, you know, more yeah. if you count development time. So yeah. you're, 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 the boys go on a float and they come back to all this new stuff you set up. What was it like watching them transfer from, because, you know, like we were talking before is a lot of people tell me, well, what's the big deal with the F-35 or the whatever? It's right. just it's like driving a car, right? You're going from a, right. from a Ford pickup truck to a Dodge. It's no big deal, but it's, that's not the right. case, is it? It's, it's a No, it's not the case at all. So we had one year... We were allowed one year to tra uh, transition from the F-14 to the F-18. And in that one year, 
we were transferring F-14 folks out and we were bringing in folks from other F-18 units to come into the squadron. And what we did is, see, it's a, when you transition a, from one platform to another in a, in a squadron, there is, there is so much training that has to be done. The maintenance crews have to be uh, trained. The equipment, the support equipment is different that you have to use to maintain the airplane and fix it. Um, the maintenance manuals are different. Everything is different. And so what you have to do is you have to, uh, you have to take people that are like subject matter experts on the F-18 and get them into your unit. So now we can set up scheduled training for our maintenance folks. The pilots uh, will be in the sims and the simulators and doing all that kind of stuff and doing, the, and doing their training. But it took us, a, a, it was a year process. So we transferred F, uh, 12 F-14s out and we uh, took in 12 F-18s. So when you bring a plane in, you have to do an acceptance inspection. Uh, you have to look at the, the log books, the paperwork. You got to get into our computer tracking system. Um, you know, the, the uh, airplane has to pass a series of functional check flights before we put it on the flight schedule, you know. And so it, it was a whole year process. It's, it's, not a, it's not like you can just flick a switch or, or you know, um, you, know you, you, drive a, um, you drive a Mustang and uh, your buddy drives a Camaro and he loans you the Camaro. You can just jump in the Camaro and go. Uh, you can't do that in a fighter, in a, in a, a fighter squadron. Uh, it's completely different and the, the navy the navy has requirements for fighter squadrons to uh have documented training have gone through the system school so you know you have the training at the unit but then you have people that you have to send off to formalize training in school centers to get trained on the systems as well so it's it's not an easy undertaking it's it's labor intensive and uh and, you know, about a year before we actually, you know, start getting deployable type thing. So you're doing all this and, you know, ladies and gentlemen, the book we're talking about is The Legendary Hunters of Texas. You can find it on Amazon and Kindle and paperback format. I'm with, um, you know, Paul Freeman, you know, uh, chief petty officer for the Navy who, you know, was a part of that unit. You know, what makes the Hunters of Texas so special? Uh, because, you know, he, he wrote a book about this, folks. Right. So um, so the, the, the Hunters go back, you know, um, they started with F-8s, F-4s, F-14s, F-18s. And what makes, what, what makes the, the unit special is we were in two, our, our normal non-combat mission was to go do adversarial flights over in the Key West. And our pilots were all top gun uh, rated pilots at one point in their career on active duty. So our pilots in our unit were all F-8 or all Tomcat or all top gun pilots. And our job was to go to Key West and take the nugget pilots, the, the, the kids basically flying the F-18s. Yeah, kids, you know, it's crazy, 25, 26 years old with a you know, an F-18 strapped to them or whatever, but they would launch out of Oceana and we would meet, meet the, the nuggets, we call them, in, uh, in Key West. And our pilots were senior pilots. They were 05s, 06s, 04s, you know, and they had all the experience from the, uh, when they were on active duty. And they also 
where the Top Gun folks that came out of Miramar, uh, real Top Gun pilots, and our guys would fight against their guys, dogfight out in Key West, and uh, for two weeks at a time. And it was part of the Nuggets pilot, the Nuggets, to get their curriculums going and signed off so that they can fly the airplane in a combat arena and in uh, ACM type situations. And our pilots would beat them up for the first couple of days on these trips. And then towards the end, they would start catching on to our senior pilots. And, and it, you know, so that's what we did. But what makes the squadron unique is in 2000, oh, after 9-11 hit, we were kind of sitting around and we were still doing these kind of these adversarial missions out of Key West from uh, Fort Worth there. And I'm at home one day and I was the night shift maintenance chief uh, for my last three years in the Navy at that squadron. And I'm sitting at home and I'm getting ready to go. And uh, I get a phone call from my boss at the squadron. And I'm like, well, why is he calling me? I'm, you know, I'm going to see him in you know, an hour. And he said, hey, uh, when you get here, we got some, uh, uh, some stuff has gone down and uh, just be prepared. I, said, I didn't ask any questions because I'm like, okay, because I'm trying to maintain some sort of uh, phone call discipline here because, you know, we are military folks. <laughs> I said, all right, I'll see you. I'll see you there. I'm on my way. And I get there and I meet up with um, uh, my, uh, my E8. There's an E8 over me in maintenance control, which is, I was the maintenance chief. And he kind of sat in the back and, and oversaw other things while I ran the squadron and got the jets on the schedule and all that stuff. And he goes, hey, uh, we're getting mobilized. I go, we're getting mobilized. I go, for what? Yeah, well, uh, we're going to get mobilized with Carrier Air Wing 8. So Carrier Air Wing 8, Travis, um, is off the East Coast, and they're an active duty Carrier Air Wing. And uh, the, they had an issue with one of their F-18 squadrons, where they were in heavy maintenance type of, they weren't going to be ready for deployment. And so <clears throat> apparently we got picked, our reserve squadron, Fort Worth, to fill that hole for Carrier Air Wing 8 to go on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt and go do live combat. Um, so I'm like, you gotta be kidding me, man. He goes, no, we're getting mobile. We're going active duty full. We're mobilizing the reserves, uh, uh, which makes up about, in our unit, we were an active duty training squadron. So that means 40% of us in, out of the total manpower in that unit on a typical day, non-combat, uh, 40% of us were active duty. The other 60% of the squadron would encompass reserves. And so our job was to train the reserves, keep them current, the pilots and the maintenance folks. They're week in a month or two weeks a year. And so that's what we did until we got mobilized. And I said, I can't believe this. Yeah, we're, we're getting mobilized with Carrier Wing 8 and uh, we're going over. We're going to go see some action. I said, oh, damn, okay. So we took our F-18s, and in one week, we took 12 F-18s, and we transferred them out, and we got the more updated F-18s into our squadron. Uh, so we got 12 new, uh, 12 modified, more up-to-date F-18s, so we could take them into, uh, take them on the Roosevelt and join Carrier Wing 8 to go do shock and all airstrikes. And um, so the significance is, is we were the first reserve fighter squadron in Navy history um, to actually get into combat, do combat. There was other squadrons throughout the Navy's history in aviation that were mobilized, um, but none of them actually did combat as far as I know. So 
I, uh, at the time, I didn't know we were making history until, um, if I can move forward a little bit. Sure, sure. So we show, so we're up in the, uh, we're off the coast. So now we're on the Roosevelt. We're steaming across the Atlantic with this carrier air wing, active duty uh, air wing, um, comes as Tomcats F-18s, and now we're one of them. And we park ourselves off to the coast of Syria, and uh, we did the shock and awe airstrikes um, off the coast of Syria, off the Roosevelt, to um, during OIF, the kickoff. And it was it was uh, it was it, back then they had it on TV and they were showing what we were doing and all that. Our main mission was to take out the comm centers and the runways to to basically destroy northern Iraq's infrastructure. Um, and, um, so we did, a, we were out there for about two weeks. We were bombing when we got the word on March, I think 19, uh, yeah, I think it was March 19. And, uh, we had all our jets ready to go. We got the word, Hey, uh, we're, we're, we're launching now we're going shock and all is now beginning. So here we are as a reserve squadron, right? We're on this USS Theodore Roosevelt off the coast of Syria, uh, Syria during an OIF. And we're doing live combat missions in the northern Iraq. That's that's not been done in naval aviation uh, fighter history. Period. We we're the first ones to do it. Um, so, um, anyways, uh, being a you know, as aircraft maintenance chief, I never thought in my wildest dreams, since I was on an active duty reserve squadron, uh, I never thought I had would have gone to a combat deployment at that point in my career because I was about three years out from retiring. And I'm like, you know, did it, done it, been on the USS John F. Kennedy, the USS Carl Vinson, and now I'm on the Theodore Roosevelt. I'm like, I'm not going to see combat. And sure as heck, man, I'm out there and I'm the aircraft maintenance chief for the one shift out there. We're launching F-18s in the live, live combat. You know, we're in a combat zone. I uh, never thought that was going to happen. Um, but to, uh, so that was the significance. I thought that was pretty damn cool. We made history. Um, if I can move a little forward, I retired in 2004. And this is the segue that got me into the book part. In 2004, I retired, got into the civilian market, and doing my aviation jobs and all that. <clears throat> and in 2007, they closed our F-18 squadron down in Fort Worth, Texas. They decommissioned the unit. They closed it down. And we're all looking at each other like, why would you close a proven fighter squadron, a reserve fighter squad? Why would you close them down? They, they've been proven that they can actually do combat and come back and they were successful. So anyways, they closed. They, I flew in from California. I was out there at that time, uh, 2007, and I went to the decommissioning ceremony. Uh, years, years later, I'm, uh, I'm sitting at home and I'm on Facebook and, and I'm hearing about this 22 kill push-up challenge. I'm going, what's this all about? And it's like uh, the 22 kill program uh, is basically, which you, you know about it, uh, maybe the audience doesn't, but it represents 22 veterans committing suicide daily from PTSD. So <clears throat> back then they had a push-up challenge and I got called out on Facebook to do this push-up challenge for 22 days. So on the 22nd day, uh, in I guess 2016 or so, I go out to the FA, I go out to my old base here in Fort Worth, and we have a static display F-18 out there. And I'm like, the 22nd day, I'm gonna do it underneath 
the nose of our F-18 out the front, outside the front gate of the base. So <clears throat> I'm out there and, and I, I do the push-ups, I get on the video and um, I call out somebody to continue the program uh, and challenge them to do 22 push-ups for 22 days. And I go on base and I go back, I go back to where our squadron hangar was and everything is gone. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, Travis. I'm like, we were the only Naval Aviation Fighter Squadron to go into combat in Navy history. And there's nothing. Our story's not captured. What's going on here? So um, I get on my squadron's Facebook page that night. And I go, hey, guys, did anybody been out to our old squadron lately? It's gone. I go, all that history's gone. So, you know, my sailors are sitting on there and they're going, hey, chief, write a book. I go, write a book about what? About what we did, our mission, our history. And I'm thinking to myself, because I was driven during the 22, uh, uh, 22 push-up challenge for 22 kill. I enjoyed spreading the word about, hey, the PTSD, that's a real issue. And, and I know friends that have serious struggles with PTS and and at, during that time and now current daytime, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'll tell you guys what, I'm gonna do a documentary on our unit from the F-8 era to the F-4s to the F-14s to the F-18s. And then what I'm gonna do, since I'm done with the 22 kill push-up program, um, I don't have a, I don't have a, I didn't have a, a stage to promote and make folks aware of what's going on with PTSD. I said, I'll write the book and I'll donate everything back to the 22 kill program and contribute that way. And I go, as hunters of our squadron, our, our, our unit name, I go, we'll still make a difference even though we're, we're closed down and we've been decommissioned. I go, so it's twofold. I'll write the book, I'll create uh, donations through my book sales. And what I'll do is um, we'll also have a, a cat, a, a a mechanism to talk about PTSD still. So I wrote the book and got published. And I was like, check this out. <laughs> okay. Now I got a stack of books at the house. And I'm like, well, I guess I gotta, I gotta, I gotta sell these things. You know, and I'm like, how am I gonna do that? So I started thinking, talking to some of my buddies. And so I started doing air shows. Oh nice. Um, huh? Oh nice, nice. Yeah. So I started I started doing book signings at air shows and uh um, I'll get to some other things here in a second, but to digress a little bit. So there's the book uh, at my, my booth at these air shows, signing books, and, and, and I have my mission statement up there of why I'm doing it. Um, I, uh, I, I, uh, I got very humbled in, in the sense of I'm sitting here. I got these little paperback books. I'm selling for $15 a piece. I'm trying to create donations. And, and then when I do, I'll, I'll, I'll transfer the money from my account to 22 kill and all that stuff. And I'm sitting there and, and I didn't know what I was getting myself into. What would happen is, is I'm sitting at the booth, this little book table I would set up at these air shows. I would, uh, I would I'd be signing the books and I'll tell you a quick story here. I'm, I'm signing a, a book to somebody, my head is down and I, I sign it and I hand it to the individual. And I look to my left and there's a young lady standing there in front of me and she's crying. And I'm, I look at her and I go, are you okay? And she goes, yeah, she's crying. And she goes, I know who you are. I know what you're doing with your book. 
you're creating these these uh, this this money to give to 22 kill for PTSD. And she and and as she's telling me that she's still crying, and I and I stand up and and she goes, my uncle committed suicide last week, and he had PTSD, and he wouldn't he wouldn't get any help, and wow. um, and I was so I got up. I had some of my squadron mates there with me at the book signing and they just, everybody got quiet. I got up and um, I hugged her. I cried with her. Um, and um, so I sat back down and um, she had given me the money for the book. And I, and I, as she was giving me the money, she goes, I have another family member who was a veteran, a Vietnam veteran. And I go, yeah. She goes, well, he's an alcoholic and he talks about committing suicide because he can't deal with what he did, dealt with in Vietnam. So I'm, <laughs> I'm wiping tears from my eyes because I'm having this moment that um, I didn't expect. And so I grab another book and I'm, I sign it and I hand it to her and she goes, I don't have no more money. I can't buy another book. I go, Take this book. This book is to your family member. My phone number is in there. If they feel like they want to talk to somebody, please tell them to call me. And then she started crying again. And uh, what I'm getting at is when you're out there and you put yourself out there, you never know what you're going to come across or what you Absolutely. Get. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? and, and, and I just wanted to share one of just one story. Sure. As and me, guys that are out there trying to help our vets, fellow vets. I have many stories like that. So um, um, so anyways, so I'm at these air shows, Travis, we meet all kinds of people, you know, and um, uh, these book signings. And I'm, I'm sitting here one day and um, this lady comes over to me. She goes, uh, I read, I read your mission. She goes, can I get a book from you? I said, sure. I go, and I'm, I'm pulling the book down. I go, yeah, who would you like me to sign it to? And she goes to uh, to uh, Gary Sinise. And I look up at her, and Gary Sinise, she goes, yeah, I'm his promoter. <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> I go, you're telling me right now, if I sign this book to Gary Sinise, you're going to give it to him? She goes, uh, yeah, of course I am. She goes, are you guys going to the Snowball Express, DFW? Uh, and I said, uh, no, I don't have tickets. And my wife was sitting next to me and she goes, um, she goes, you guys, you two meet me after the air show and uh, I'm going to give you tickets. You're going to be my guest. And I went, okay. I'm, now I'm starting to, you know, I'm thinking maybe this lady really is who she says she is, you know? Right. You never know, right? Yeah. I didn't know. You know I'm like, okay, we're going to meet her at a gas station outside Alliance airport and she's supposed to give us some air, uh, tickets. Okay. Sounds good. So we, we leave, we go to the, we meet her at this gas station and it wasn't Bucky's because um, if it was Bucky's, we would have done some shopping. It was at another gas station. <laughs> but um, uh, anyway, so she walks up, she gets out of her car and she's walking towards us and she has the book in her hand that uh, I gave her to give to Gary, Sinise. And she hands me two tickets and she hands me the book back. I go, why are you handing me the book back? I thought you were giving that to Gary Sinise. And she goes, I, uh, I just got off the phone with him and he wants you to give him the book. And I'm like, okay, this is real. I'm like, this is, this is real. I said, okay. So a month or two later, Travis, we show up and uh, at American Airlines hangar where Gary Sinise was 
and then Lieutenant Dan Van was doing their uh, doing their um, their Snowball Express, co you know, their concerts and all that. And, and I'm sitting next to the promoter, and during the concert, she's like, "Okay, get ready." And I go, "Get ready for what?" She was going up on stage. I was like, okay, you know, I'm like, "Hey, hey I'm telling my wife, hey, babe, I, I think I'm going up on stage here. I don't know." Anyways, a long story short, uh, didn't happen, but we met him at his bus after the concert. And for me, what an opportunity. What an opportunity for me to stand across him and thank him for all of us, from all of us, for what he does. I says, you just did a three-hour concert and you're taking time to talk to me. Um, I go, I'm just small time. I go, he goes, no. He goes, Paul. He goes, Every, it all counts. Everybody that's helping, it all matters. It doesn't matter if it's a small scale or big scale. And uh, anyways, I, uh, at that point, I says, babe, we're donating money to Gary Sinise too now, his foundation. I said, that guy is the bomb, nicest guy in the world. And uh, anyways, so um, that's, that's kind of how we got to the book. And some of the things that we've done since book has been published and doing my uh, my signings because I I, I uh, other than Amazon Travis and Kindle um, I put myself out there to try and move the book and, and at least try and create some sales you know create a couple hundred bucks and, and send it off you know um, so um, that's kind of how I got to. Uh, uh, that's from my military to the book to what the mission is of the book. Well, I mean, it's good to talk with you because that comes out in the book, right? You know, this, this storied unit um, in, in Texas is decommissioned with little fanfare that serves so distinctly, right? And then, you know, what you're doing with this, you're not just, you know, telling the story for all the, the, the sailors and shipmates who, and the aviators who served in this unit you're educating other people who don't know much about this kind of thing. You're taking the, the, what you get from this book and giving back to other veterans so they, they can continue to, you know, enjoy the life they have. I mean, this is the kind of thing that, you know, we want to see from all veterans and, and you're doing it. Um, I guess I would ask as we kind of get near to closing this down is, you know, question one, how, how do people, buy the book is it is, i have the amazon link is, is that the best yeah. place to go Absolutely. yeah amazon, amazon is the best place um and then it's word of mouth or it's through facebook uh people can reach out i'm on facebook and uh um i have a page you know the uh the legendary hunters of texas there is a facebook page uh they can look me up through i've been using facebook because you know um you know, I, I don't have any, uh, like a staff to support me here. <laughs> sure. So I'm using, you know, I'm using social media to promote the book, um, to sell it and, and try and collect some uh, proceeds to donate. So Amazon is the main amazon.com and it's, it's in Kindle form as well. And they can also just look me up on Facebook. They can Google the legendary hunters of Texas and the books right there. Uh, well, I'm going to have all these links to the, the, the Facebook page and the Amazon and all that in this show post. You can purchase the book and know that the proceeds from the sale of this book is going right back into the veteran community. Um, you're supporting a veteran who took it upon himself to do this. It's just a great story. Um, 
as we move through different things, like the F-18 is being phased out and going to be replaced by the F-35, and there's going to be change there. But, you know, keeping this alive is very important, and, you know, it's just one of the best things about doing this. And I just want to thank Commander Fleek and Richard Farr for the introduction, being able to talk with you, Paul. Yeah, thank you, Travis. Uh, I really appreciate you uh, giving me the opportunity to, the, the, at the end of the day, the whole thing is about just talking about PTSD. I mean, really is. It's not about the book and it is, that's the catalyst, but it's about function just fine. They have coping mechanisms that they, and then others don't. Others are got it really bad. Alcoholism, yeah. drugs. And to the point where they commit suicide. But if I could just shout out uh, to my wife, thank I want to thank her for all her support. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, she she jumps right in there uh, whenever, and she puts up with me. And she goes, "Where are we now?" And she jumps. She's right there with me. So I really appreciate that. And then my my buddies from the Carl Vincent. That was our the mothership. We all came in together. That was Richard Fleet, Tony Ortiz, Taco, uh, Klinkenberg. And John Foster, these guys all shipmates from 37 years ago, um, and we still talk and give each other hell. And, and and at the end, I would like to thank all the hunters. The book is not just about the F-18 era; it's a, to represent all the hunters that were before me that started the unit. It's right. the timers to the current day F-18 guys, and I want to thank them and their support because there's no way I could have wrote this book without those different eras helping me get some information and uh, develop a book. So thank you, Travis, for what you do and uh, at Oscar Mike radio. And um, I really appreciate your time. It's no problem at all. I, I love doing these kinds of uh, shows and, and, and reading the story. The, the book is fantastic. And then hearing it from you yourself and what you're doing with it is just makes it all worth it. So again, uh, it's called the legendary hunters of Texas, it's a book written by uh, chief Navy chief, Paul Freeman. I have the links in the show post. Uh, he's doing great things with this book. Check it out. And once again, uh, you know, Paul, thank you for coming on Oscar Mike radio. Yeah, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you, too. And as we say in Oscar Make Radio, we are mission in flight. Thank you.